Joso. Uh, no. More about gel coat. When the force. Don't you call in the. More importantly. For March of 2023, it's TV Talkaholics in your ear holes. I'm David, and this is Matthew. Hi, David. How are you, my love? I'm awake. Uh-huh. Did you get some sleep? Yeah. Okay. Well, a little, little bit. A little bit. You asked how I was, and the answer is I'm awake. Oh, okay. There, That's all we need. And uh, that's all that I require of you for making any of these recordings, because we know if you said nothing, we would still have a full hour and a half of content of me flapping my frickin' gums. So, Tutti Fruities, this is episode 40, and this is the last of the first access episodes that we're putting out on the Patreon, the entire catalog of TV Talkaholics goes into uh, general release starting on March the 15th. And then there will be new content happening starting in December. We are not completely taking a break for that long. <laughs> Ironically, a, a nine-month break. Don't Don't read into that. Like, you know, one of us might be in trouble because... <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, at this point, this is, I think, the last time I'm going to be calling you guys Tutti Fruities. Because now under the new TV Talkaholics branding, I'm going to call you my sponsors. You see, see what I did there? I do see what you did there. Because you're sponsoring the show and also in a 12-step program, which we are not making light of or trying to poke any fun at. Uh, sponsors they are, are a big thing, are a very important part of, of keeping things going. So um, I was very happy to discover that the answer was uh, that simple and yet that applicable. So at this point, it is March 2023. Tutti Fruities, we love you. And now, sponsors going forward. Thank you if you are staying as a member of the family. And as I've already told you in other posts, if you decide you want to take a little break through December without any new content coming out, you know I will not be mad at you. But I will say, a little extra thing, Matthew did present me with an interesting idea of something else that we might do as a little bit of an add-on. And, and that's it. That's all I'm teasing you with. I'm just saying, if you choose to stick around and stay a member of the family, you, of course, have my deepest appreciation and respect. And there might be a little something in it for you that is coming up that I hadn't thought of before. We're releasing my nudes. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's... <clears throat> Uh, sure, we'll go with that. That's that's going to be the teaser. There it is. It's going to be uh, the OnlyFans page of TV Talkaholics. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. So, are you ready, Matthew, to talk about I Dream of Genie 15 <clears throat> years later? I am sorry. I was looking up other reunion shows because we did the Facts of Life reunion movie this came up, Mackenzie Ashton was in it, and I thought, oh, this will be fun to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't find this fun. Fun is a strong word. Mm -hmm. I mean, was it the worst thing I've ever sat through? No. But I was not a fan of I Dream of Jeannie. 
the TV show. Did I, you ever watch it at all growing up? No, not one episode. Oh, geez. I thought you at least caught some of it. Not one. Oh. Oh. So now after watching this reunion movie, you're you're stampeding toward the toward the streaming services to go watch those now, aren't you? No. <laughs> Uh, I am very, very excited to talk about this movie. That does not mean that I thought it was in any way, shape, or form a good movie. A lot, a lot, a lot of little things to talk about. But let's get to, let's kind of get started with this and get talking about. I Dream of Jeannie, 15 years later, which had an original air date of Sunday, October 20th of 1985. And uh, yeah, 15 years later, because the original show had run between 1965 and 1970. And uh, th this is 15 years after the original show went off the air. This was followed by another TV movie called I Still Dream of Jeannie. That came out in 1991. And uh, compared to that one, what I saw of it, I only kind of skimmed it and read a synopsis. Uh, I think this one, this one's looking like the big chill in comparison. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, before we get going, talking about the show and generalities and blah, blah, blah. Want to do some nutsy, boltsy thingsy? Please. I'm sure you're wondering what else was on television on Sunday, October 20th of 1985. Well, now I am. Yes, you are. On ABC from 7 to 8 p.m. was Ripley's Believe It or Not. That was, I think, the version with Jack Palance acting really creepy. <laughs> I mean, granted, he was always really creepy in everything that he did, really and truly. But yeah, that was where he would do that weird, and that's the weird story of the thing. Mm. Believe it or not. <laughs> and it was to the it was like Rocky Horror. Say it level of what dude, really? Are we being that dramistical? Huh? Did you ever watch any of that? The Jack no. Palance Ripley's Believe It or Not? Well, I'm sure I mean I'm sure I did, but I don't have any recollection of it. Yeah. I have very, very little, other than thinking that dude is creepy and I don't really want to watch any more of this than I have to. This was followed on ABC by the World Series. Mm. And the World Series is what sport, Matthew? Um, basketball, basketball, ball <laughs> sport. I thought you might get a straight point out of this, but uh, the World Series is baseball. Yeah. And truly the only reason I know that is because I was raised in Massachusetts and during the 70s and 80s, the Red Sox were a big deal. They were kind of at the peak of their uh, popularity and achievements, or at least one of their peaks. So, uh, yeah, baseball was a big thing. You could not avoid it. Even I had to kind of know a few things about it. Over on CBS, 7 p.m., 60 Minutes, 8 p.m., Murder, She Wrote, 9 p.m., Crazy Like a Fox, 9.30, Trapper John, M.D. Trapper John. Mm-hmm. Did you know that series? Are you familiar with that series? I mean, I know it. I've heard of it. Never seen an episode. Uh, me neither. And here's the funny thing. We're going to be talking about Wayne Rogers 
who is in this movie. He played Trapper John on MASH for the first, I think, four seasons, first three or four seasons. And then this was a spinoff of that. And so in my mind, I was like, well, he did both shows, right? No, Wayne Rogers was not in Trapper John M.D., the series. In that series, they had an older actor, Pernell Roberts. And the idea was that it started in 79. It took place 28 years after MASH, after he was in the Korean War, so that it could be a contemporary show. So they used an older actor. Mm. Not sure he was that much older than Wayne Rogers, but uh, anyway, I thought that was interesting. I was like, oh, in my my mind, I thought that Wayne Rogers was always Trapper John, but nope, this other dude. Over on NBC, 7 to 8 p.m., Punky Brewster. Hour long, Punky Brewster, because if a half hour of Punky Brewster is good, a full hour of Punky Brewster is awesome. How could you not want to watch that? <laughs> 8 p.m. Amazing Stories, 8.30 p.m. Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and 9 p.m. This. This was on at 9 p.m. It's like, re uh, really? For how popular I Dream of Jeannie was, not just with the adults who watched it in the first go-round, but my generation, you know, I'm born in 68, and this show went off in 70, but it was in the reruns constantly i dream of genie you could not escape it so i was deeply interested in catching this even though you know in 1985 what am i 17 i was like oh i want to see this i want you know like watching the gilligan's island cast and crew coming back together it was like yes we want the reunions uh and i'm like so why would you put it on at nine o'clock why wouldn't this have been an 8 p.m thing I don't know. Have to ask. When I send stuff back in the time machine, I'll, I'll ask them to, to drop me a note about that. And there was no Fox Network yet. It's 1985. It's a couple years away. So from Wikipedia, for those who have been living under a rock who do not know what the premise of I Dream of Genie is. For the love. I Dream of Genie is an American fantasy sitcom television series created by Sidney Sheldon that starred Barbara Eden as a sultry 2,000-year-old genie and Larry Hagman as an astronaut with whom she falls in love and eventually marries. And just to add to that, she meets him. He lets her out of her bottle and becomes her master. So what I didn't know till I was researching this was that this was loosely based on a 1964 American fantasy film called The Brass Bottle. It's based on a novel from 1900, and it had been filmed a couple of other times previously. But this starred Tony Randall, Burl Ives as the genie, and as Tony Randall's girlfriend, Barbara Eden. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, she's not a genie in the movie, but apparently that stuck in a lot of people's memory. Casting Burl Ives as the genie kind of ruined the um, the will they, won't they of the movie. Because <laughs> you know? Tony Randall, you were like, oh, they're gonna. But no. then Burl Ives kind of. Ay, 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 ay. So let's do some, uh, let's do some little talkaholic points here. Um. Barbara Eden is Jeannie. God, she is gorgeous. And Jeannie, too. And her uh, her sister, apparently a fraternal twin sister, <laughs> with brown hair named Jeannie, too. 
their excuse being, well, all genies are named genie. And it's like, uh, really? Wow. Mackenzie Aston is in this. He's the reason why we are here. He plays the son of Tony and Jeannie. He is awesome. This is right around the time he was joining the cast of The Facts of Life. So this is pretty much as we saw him as Andy in season six. And uh, what are your thoughts on his performance? Because I think he is, as usual, exceptionally good. Yeah, he's great. Yes, he's just great. Yeah. The scene where Jeannie is showing him the bottle and letting him know that she is a genie, she has to come out to her son here. Uh, his reactions to it, his reaction to the bottle floating, and then later he has to have a kind of a tearful scene trying to open the bottle himself. I was like, okay, you go, kid. This is asking a lot of you. And he's, yeah. what, 13 at this point. So uh, if not 12, he might even be 12. Jesus. But... I Dream of Jeannie ran for five seasons on NBC, 139 episodes. Season one was in black and white. Often you see them in reruns colorized because it's just one season, 30 episodes, and they kind of figure, ah, just stick them in with the rest of them and consider them all to be in color. But it premiered in September of 65 and ran through May of 1970. A big deal was made about this movie in that Finally, Barbara Eden was able to play Jeannie, and we would be able to see her belly button. That was a big deal. I remember that being in all of the press, in all of the interviews. That was something everybody fixated and focused on. In that, in 1965, the TV censors, when they were putting the show together, they were like, yeah, that harem costume, no belly button. And you never did see it. That, that, that is not true. Is because, it not true? Correct me, Matthew. Well, it's one of those kind of stories that sort of happened, but like has been conflated to be like there was somebody on the set with binoculars staring at her harem costume saying, no, you can't see a belly button. You saw it a couple of times in episodes. It didn't become an issue until I think... Um, somebody wrote a letter in like 69 when they saw it like oh, jesus so like it like i i was reading up on that and it's one of those conflated stories where you if you watch every single frame of every single episode you saw her belly button a few times so it's a more of a hollywood lore than it is an actual real thing okay you're welcome well good to know because I had no research to back that up. I'm just going by what I knew and understood and remembered them in the promotion of this movie talking about it too. And in this movie, we do get the classic genie pink costume that we always saw her in on the TV show. But there's also this newer updated white costume with a lot more bugle beads and sequins and things like that. And that is clearly designed to be below the belly button and show it off. That's the, the pose and the picture you see of her on all the video covers and all the posters and stuff. And of course, the big question is, was this show a ripoff of Bewitched? Because it really felt a lot like it, and it was on TV at the same time. And I will say, I didn't watch that much of I Dream of Jeannie growing up in the reruns because I was much more a fan of Bewitched. I liked it way, way, way better. 
Now, did you ever watch Bewitched? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, the difference with it is, and I think it hasn't aged as well as Bewitched, is that the idea of a woman calling a man her master, having the whole your wish is my command thing. I mean, granted, not that this genie ever really followed the rules. That was where the comedy came from, was her being uh, jealous and impish and and acting against Tony's wishes. But the thing with that was there was still this sense of ownership, which felt a little icky. Well, it still felt icky in this 1985 movie. Okay, good. Um, I wondered if it, that no. would come off, come come out of it. Yeah. Even though there's not that much sort of stuff in there. But the thing with Bewitched was that it was a choice that, that Samantha was making. Samantha was, I am a witch. I've fallen in love with the mortal and I am making the life choice to basically renounce my witchhood because I love him so much. I want to be with him and live a mortal lifestyle. And the fact that her mother and her family are just constantly showing up and fucking with them and fucking with her that she has no choice but to use her witchcraft to fix the problems. It seems a lot more... I can't believe I'm using this word, plausible. <laughs> then this whole thing of, you know, what are what are her powers? What can she do? What can Jeannie do? What can Jeannie to do and not do? You know what I'm saying? Like on Bewitched, one of the things was a witch cannot undo the spell of another witch. So, if Endora showed up and turned Darren into a Shih Tzu, Elizabeth Montgomery could not, in turn, zap and unturn him into a dog. She would have to use her witchcraft to figure out some type of a workaround. Uh, but the the rule that they had to follow, and I like this, you know me because I like rules, is that one witch could not undo another witch's spell. With this, it's like... Well, case in point, in order to get one astronaut out of the way, Genie 2 shows up and influences how he practices his golf swing. And in the process, whoops, he hurts his back and now he can't go. It's like, couldn't she have just shown up in miniature where he didn't have to see her, didn't have to talk to her? And couldn't she have just gone, blink, I just rotated one of the discs in his spine. He is hurt. He's out. That's not nearly as fun to film and watch, is it? <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. Of course, nothing, none of this would have given Barbara yeah. Eden. Why weren't they a little more realistic in how they magically fucking broke his back? Yeah, I get it. No. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is hey. what what are the what are the rules in that? This whole thing of being a genie means you have magical power. So these magical powers could kind of do what they needed to do whenever they needed to do it. And It's a 1960s sitcom about a genie, for Christ's sake. She's 2,000 years old. Uh-huh. And you want you want rules? Okay. I do. Yes. I yes, get I do. the facts of life wanting rules. I get it. And I get <laughs> it. But, like, we do encounter a rule in this movie where she can't alter a timeline. If somebody is supposed to die, she can't stop that. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if that has ever been a thing before on the series, if that's retconning anything that we had before on the series, but 
Um, but let me keep going with the cast here. The big weird thing that I remember was kind of upsetting and still is, is the fact that Colonel Tony Nelson is not played by Larry Hagman, who played him on the series. Then why do it? Thank you. I, just, I could not agree more. It's like, why? But okay. As someone who didn't watch the show, it didn't bother me as much, but I could, I can see like why you, why you would be like wah, wah, immediately as soon as they announced that. But the show is called I Dream of Genie, but he is the protagonist. He is the everyman. He's the guy that is just trying to live his life, trying to be an astronaut and Genie is constantly throwing weird shit at him that he has to somehow make work. So he is the lead of the show. At the time, Larry Hagman was in the middle of Dallas. Dallas ran for 14 fucking seasons. Yeah. And truly, Larry Hagman's legacy, when you say, well, what was Larry Hagman best known for in his career? It's weird that he's more known for being J.R. Ewing than he was known for being Tony Nelson. Oh, yeah. And it would have been very weird for him to suddenly take on this light comedic thing. He was really, really into playing the villain on Dallas. And, uh, you know, the media and the press and the public were eating that shit up because Dallas was such a hot show. But I'm with you. It's like, okay, we use Wayne Rogers instead. Eh. The next movie, they don't even use him. The next movie, Tony's gone on a mission, and it's a secret mission where Genie and Tony Jr. don't even know where the fuck he is. So he's literally not in the movie. And he doesn't, and then she gets a new master. By the end of the movie, she and Tony Jr., and Tony Jr. is not played by Mackenzie Aston in the next movie. Uh, they have to get a temporary master, and they get it just under the wire. And it was Ken Kercheval. Not the Ken Kercheval. Which was funny because he was J.R. Ewing's nemesis on Dallas. Was he? So Ken Kerchival showed up and took control of Genie. It was kind of a wink to the audience. Oh, see, I I didn't know that. And I never watched Dallas. You watch Dallas? God, no. But Ken, <laughs> Ker Ken Kerchival was a dear friend. Was he? <laughs> Started out early in your career together in the chorus, I'm sure. We did an all- male version of the vagina monologues back at the Wagon Wheel Dinner Theater in Warsaw, Indiana. <laughs> of course you did. Also returning to this as far as reprising the role that they originated, Bill Daly as Roger Healy, Tony's BFF. Uh, he was always creepy. And he's very creepy in this. Am I right? Well, I didn't know if it was a thing in the series where he was always trying to get Jeannie to leave Major Nelson like that oh she's a gorgeous blonde woman get out of my way best friend I'm hi I'm over here kind of thing yeah it is weird that they the clip that they show there's very few clips here but they do cut to a, a couple of earlier clips from the series and the one that they do show is like this is the best clip you could find of her with Roger, where he says something about becoming her master in Tony's absence. And then later, 
when she has left Tony, which is like, okay, how does she get to leave Tony if he's her master? If he doesn't want her to leave, that's a whole other thing. But uh, but Bill Daly even says, well, I, I know it's not cool to, you know, make the moves on your best friend's wife kind of a thing. So, uh, you know, and I'm just like, yeah. And, and he was always kind of girl crazy, kind of always the scheming one looking to get rich quick. And I, I think he, if I remember correctly, he kind of always wished Tony took more advantage of the fact that Jeannie could snap her fingers and have it fucking rain money on them or have them living in a mansion or give them a harem of beautiful women to sleep with. Returning to the role of Dr. Bellows, Hayden Rourke. That old queen. Very late. Like he he did not live much past this. I think this was his final project before he died. And yeah, he's well into his 70s here, but looking even older than that. And he was always the guy, the boss showing up at the house because you show up at your employees' houses all the time, don't you? And he would always be the person who... The crazy shit would be happening around, and somehow Tony and Roger would have to explain it away. They would have to sitcom lie. Well, well no, uh, you heard that because uh, Tony's a professional opera singer. Yeah, that's the ticket. And, and it was always just, uh... and that's the thing. I didn't, I didn't like this as much as Bewitched because Samantha's witchcraft shenanigans often had to be out of necessity. She was always trying to do damage control. In this, it was simply Jeannie, who is supposed to be obeying the wishes of her master, not obeying the wishes of her master and being impulsive and, and jealous sometimes. And, you know, fucking around with, in the early episodes, Tony has a fiance and Jeannie's like, nah, bitch, not in my house. So, yeah, Jeannie is much more of like a petulant child that never was fully able to be controlled and, and never grew up. Whereas Bewitched, it always seemed like Samantha was trying to approach it from an adult point of view. That that's I think that's my big thing. And, you know, and clearly I was an extremely mature child, you know, Matthew. Yeah. So the the adult themed entertainment was much more uh, up my alley as it were up yours <laughs> um so speaking of being a ripoff of bewitched and comparisons the question is was adding genie 2 into the show a ripoff of bewitched in that samantha had serena her wacky twin cousin who would always come in and start some shit uh yeah most certainly. Serena premiered on Bewitched in 1965. And Genie 2 appeared first on I Dream of Genie in 1967. But here's the deal. Both of the shows were produced by the same production company, by Screen Gems. So weren't going to be no damn lawsuits or anything. They were like, nope, we're double dipping. We're literally producing two very similar shows. And people are watching both of them. So... We're, we're going to laugh all the way to the bank. And I think Ken Reed has pointed out multiple times on his show that this was that interesting time in TV where a lot of shows were centered around things we need to hide. 
like my mother, the car, like Mr. Ed, like I'm married to a witch. I have a genie. This whole trend of um, post-war suburban conformism. Oh, there you go. There's there's some $80 words. Jesus, Beverly Ann. <laughs> Beverly Ann lives on. So uh, other characters, other actors, who else do we need to talk about? We need to talk about Haji. Haji, the king, the leader of all of the wizards. Haji had been a character on I Dream of Genie, kind of the only authority to whom Genie really and truly had to report, because God knows she never did what fucking Tony told her to do. Haji on the show had been played by this older actor named Abraham Sofair, S-O-F-A-E-R. Uh, at the time of this film, he was 88 years old and had been retired for several years. And uh, he died three years later at the age of 91. Very likely he was not in any condition to be in this movie, let alone to have decided as the king of all of the genies to moonlight as the owner of a fucking gym of an aerobics fucking exercise palace. It's very 1985. Oh, let's get physical, physical. Did you recognize who Haji was played by in this film? Of course. I did not. I was looking at the cast and I was like, oh, shit, I have no idea. I would not have recognized this younger version of Broadway royalty, Andre DeShields. Wow. He's kind of a big deal. You want to you tell the, the heterosexuals out there who Andre DeShields is? Well, he just won his Tony for Town. Mm hmm. After a very, very full and illustrious Broadway career, starting off as a choreographer in the early 70s for people including Bette Midler in 1974, in the original Broadway production of The Wiz, he was The Wiz. In 1978, he was in the original cast of Ain't Misbehavin' with Nell Carter and Ken Page. The 1982 TV version that they filmed, he's also in that. That is on YouTube. You can find that. Matthew watches it regularly because of his worship of Nell Carter. Bitch. In 2000, in the musical version of The Full Monty on Broadway, he took on the role of the, the guy known as the horse, the, the big black man they needed to have in their team. And he turns out to be a little older than they planned. And then, yeah. All of these, this this long and very decorated Broadway career never got a Tony Award, though, till he did Hermes in Hadestown, which is still playing at the Walter Carr Theater, uh, though he has left the show uh, within the last uh, couple years. But yeah, he is at the moment, as of this recording, 77 years old. Uh, he's an admired elder gay in the gay community because he is out and proud also been living with HIV for over 40 years, so he's an activist in that respect. And uh, yeah, Andre DeShields is kind of a big deal to to the gays and to the Broadway peoples. Uh, so this is part of your education to the two or three heterosexuals out there who might be listening. And the only other cast member of note, this I literally, like five minutes before we connected, Matthew, <laughs> discovered this. Mackenzie Aston is chasing this girl at school named Melissa. And Melissa is played by a young, tween-aged girl named Nicole Eggert. 
Now, I never would have recognized her, but as soon as I saw the name, I went, wait a minute. No, no, she's famous. She's, she's, that, that's a name that I recognize. And sure enough, she is famous, but she's famous after my time famous. Do you know what she's famous for? No. 104 episodes of Charles in Charge from 87 to 90. 44 episodes of Baywatch from 1992 to 1994. And has continued on from there, still is out there, still is working. But to the generation of kids who grew up on Charles in Charge, Nicole Eggert is a big deal. She is very well known and famous to them. So, yeah, this was early, early, early in her career. Um, so let's get into some overall thoughts. What are our thoughts in general about this as a TV movie? My first thought is that. Barbara Eden looked amazing. Oh, damn, didn't she? To Do you know point... how old she is here? Do you know how old she is? No. She is 54 years old. Well, good for her. 54. I am 54 years old. And I, uh, I, I'm not sure if anyone has not seen me on video. I do not look as good as Barbara Eden did when she was 54. Just saying. It was to the point, David, where I didn't know if the flashback scenes were actual flashback scenes or if they were filmed when she was 54 in 1985. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell. Because she looked so good. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say this. When you think of like great actresses, I don't think Barbara Eden's name comes up as, as much as it probably should. Because Jeannie and Jeannie too are two so completely different characters. And I, like, with the writing she was given, I just got to give props to Barbara Eden. Because she was really, really good in this. Mm-hmm. There, I said it. Yes. I think what is not helping her is the fact that they always stuck to Jeannie speaking in a formalized English. Yeah. Because when we first meet her, she's, of course, speaking Arabic. English is not her first language. But... She always spoke uh, with no contractions. It was always, Master, you are not going to be heading out on a date with that other woman. I cannot allow that. That's how they always had her talk. That's how she still talks here to an extent as Jeannie. They've kind of <laughs> tried to modernize her a little bit. But the sort of constant wide-eyed naivete of the character, the simplicity with which she needed to play that i think came off as being simplicity as an actress and then you see what she is doing with genie too when she gets to let loose and really have some fucking fun and and i'm with you i did the same thing i was like okay yeah she's about the same she's she's doing great she still looks fabulous and then as the genie two scene started to accumulate and and the costuming god damn yeah. what was the costume budget for this but yeah, no, Barbara Eden does not get, I think, the love that she should as an actress, because mostly people think of her in genie mode, playing that stilted, simplistic dialogue. 
that that she delivered expertly, that absolutely gave it what exactly it needed, no more, no less. So I'm totally in agreement with you with that. Did you uh, count how many different looks Genie 2 had? I did not, but I was I started to get to the point where I was like, how many wigs are they putting her in? <laughs> I <laughs> swear to God, I think there are eight that I counted, eight different looks for this tiny little thing, but I have, I named many of them. There's one look that I call the Michelle Lee Joyce DeWitt with that short, shaggier kind of a haircut. And then there was, of course, Joan Collins, Genie 2. And then there's Cher Genie 2 when she comes in with the long, straight, dark hair and the leopard print uh, jacket and the leather pants. And great wigs, by the way. Great wigs. like Really good. Like that long one that she showed up in, that Cher wig, I was like... That looks like her hair. And she does. And she's using it like it's her hair. She she was great. Mm-hmm. They did they you, spent their money where they needed to. That's for what, sure. What did you call? I called it the um the Sally Kellerman when she was when she had the short perm of the Roseanne oh Rosanna God. Dana. I was at like, the golf a- place in the onesie yeah. in the yeah that's a I didn't have a name for that the Sally Kellerman is genius <laughs> I was like why is she wearing a Roseanne Rosanna Dana wig <laughs> and then when Jeannie is driving Jeannie too doesn't just appear in the passenger seat she appears in miniature sitting on the passenger seat headrest which are like what huh why but i called that pat benatar genie too because she had like this really short spiky rocker chick look and oh my god you can tell she was having so much fun well and again wouldn't it have been cheaper just to film her in the passenger seat split screen and you know blue screen in the background not even they didn't even use a split screen when she was in the car Nope. In in miniature, when he could have just green screened her on, but like, oh, Mm -hmm. bless bless her heart. So there were many surprises in this for me, as far as discovering people like Andre DeShields, Nicole Eggert. I have to say the two biggest surprises were when I saw the writing credit and the directing credit. Did you register Mm -hmm. either of those? Um, I saw Irma Kalish's name. Irma Kalish, who was the showrunner for The Facts of Life in many of its later seasons. And so because this is 85, I'm like, so was this before? Did did this get her the job on The Facts of Life? Yeah. Did someone watch this movie and go, who wrote this? I think that's what happened. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But whatever it is, because, you know, we're not big fans of the writing of the later seasons of the facts of life. Not sure if the listeners might've picked up on that, but uh, yeah, story by Dinah and Julie Kurgo and Irma Kalish. So she was one of the story. I don't know who these other ladies are with the story. I didn't even look them up because no sooner was I taking a picture of the screen and texting that to you when I was even more shocked to see directed by William Asher. Do you know who William Asher is, Matthew? I mean, if it's the same William Asher I'm thinking it is, then ugh, he owes me money for a pool tournament we did back in 86. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's the same William Asher that you're talking about, 
William Asher was not just the oftentimes director and sometime producer of Bewitched. In the course of his involvement in that show, he was also married to Elizabeth Montgomery mm. and is the father of her two children. Yeah, not and, the same William Asher. Not the same William <laughs> Asher. Okay, just good to know. But I looked back and I was like, well, did he ever work on I Dream of Jeannie? Was this trying to... No, he never directed a single episode of I Dream of Jeannie. But somehow, somewhere, when they needed a director for this, they were like, well, I mean, he knows how to do the effects. He knows how to do the the freezes and all the, the witchcraft stuff. He's already got his resume full of that. But how weird to see... Basically, the guy in my mind who is creatively synonymous with Bewitched directing an I Dream of Genie movie. So fucking weird. And neither of these, Irma and William, they have nothing to do with the next movie. That's a completely new creative team. And uh, and it shows. <laughs> wonder if it was like a fuck you to Elizabeth Montgomery. Oh, really? <laughs> And remember, William Asher, after he was married to Elizabeth, Elizabeth Montgomery, was married to Joyce Bulafont. Remember that? That's a, a <clears> thing that has come up. And Joyce Bulafont had been married to Roger Perry, who played Mr. Parker on The Facts of Life. And everything comes back to an Oprah full circle moment because it's all about the facts of life, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else do you want to talk about? Throw anything. Throw anything at at the wall here. Some of the things I had to check with our my NASA expert, Aaron. Oh, of course. The wonderful Aaron Chapman. Hi, Aaron. Because there's a lot of stock footage of NASA things. <laughs> From the early 70s. <laughs> and Very clearly not 1985 NASA. <laughs> and they refer to the space shuttle as Liberty 7. But the space shuttle that they use is Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, and the video of Columbia taking off is um, was Columbia's first flight. Um, they do correctly show mission control in Houston. Oh, good. Thank um, God. And when they bring him back, um, they say, we're going to land you in Edwards. Um, and they And the video that they show is... Columbia landing in Edwards Air Force Base in oh. California. Oh, okay. Um, a space shuttle wouldn't be able to do a deep space mission. We don't have manned deep space missions other than going to the moon. Like shuttles mm -hmm. are orbiters. So they go out and they have to stay there in the Earth's orbit. Um, <clears throat> when they show the Boeing, the people wearing the Boeing jackets and stuff uh-huh that is actually launch control at cape canaveral which gets turned off and hands over to mission control in houston as soon as the launch is done so when they show the boeing people it's to the point where they're going to hit the asteroid oh okay so boeing and launch control would not be sitting at their desks at this point watching this happen um wow. people at mission control in Houston would have, but again, those are just tiny little little um details here. Columbia seven Columbia obviously um 
the video they show of it taking off was its first ever launch in 1981. And you probably remember Columbia blew up upon re-entry in 2003. Mm. Tragical. Um, And in 86, we had, um, was it Challenger? Challenger. 86 was when the Challenger uh, blew up. That was on going heading out right yeah yeah that was heading out and that i remember being in high school when that happened that was oof there's that wonderful scene where where genie or genie 2 shows up in the in the general's office mm-hmm. just just wanted to congratulate the astronaut just, just walk into up. a military air force base yeah or or better yet blink myself in to uh <laughs> As not to look suspicious, I'm going to blink myself into this general's office, demand to see the general and congratulate them on their astronauts. Um, <clears throat> but the secretary is like, well, here's the dossier, stranger, <laughs> that just blinked into my office. Um, <clears throat> with all Stop the secret, crews, sure hope you don't read it. Yeah. yeah, all the flight crew's names on it and everything. But this is something that, Aaron told me that is accurate in the I dream of genie universe, but not accurate in the real world. Uh-huh. I, I dream of genie made it look like all astronauts were military officers. Oh, and you might have, she said you might have one on a mission. Oh, really? Yeah. So, but she said in the I Dream of Genie universe, every astronaut they referred to was some sort of military officer. Yeah. Yeah. They started as captain in the in the pilot, Tony and Roger are captains. And then very quickly they're promoted to major. And if anyone thinks of I Dream of Genie, you think Major Nelson, Major yeah. Healy. And yeah, they're colonels, or at least Tony's a colonel. I don't do we know what ranking Roger holds? I'm not sure. But uh yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah, I'm my only understanding of the space program is from I Dream of Teeny. And and of course the series, because the series took place where Cape Canaveral is, they live in Cocoa Beach, which is just 45 minutes down the road from where we are right now. So But they are in Texas in this movie. They've moved to Texas. Yeah, because of Houston and Tony's promotion to Colonel and all that. Yeah. Another thing that I read on, I think this is from IMDb, is that uh, in this universe, Tony Nelson uh, would be a very unusual astronaut in that he has gone into space in a Mercury capsule, a Gemini capsule, and an Apollo capsule, and now he's going to be going up in a space shuttle. There is no astronaut in history who has ever flown on all four types of spacecraft. Correct. Wow. Interesting. And remind me, do you know this? The big deal of the space shuttle is that it's shaped like an airplane. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. We send it up like a rocket and we land it like an airplane. Yeah. That was a big uh, innovation in the 80s. And it's reusable. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So that was was the big thing about, that's why it's called a shuttle, because a shuttle comes back. (laughs) Yep. That was a big thing. That was a big deal in the 80s when I was a teenager that this was the the latest innovation in space travel. And maybe you've seen my video recently of my trip to Kennedy Space Center, where I took people on a tour. 
um maybe i'll allow you to post that david on, would you um, would you allow me to post that i would allow you to post that on the on the page so thank you for all that information and thank you aaron for giving us that it's it never honestly would have occurred to me to try to uh, verify any of this stuff other than it is so obvious that the stock footage of mission control is not from 1985 it looks like it's much earlier and it's like okay whatever at least they they made the effort we got to give them an a for effort um speaking of the capsule and all that the interesting thing you know this is the stuff that i fucking love to deep dive on uh when genie has to tell tony jr that she is a genie and explain to him how she and his father met. She, I don't know if we're able to travel through time, if they're able to change the future or whatever, but she takes Mackenzie Aston to the beach where they first met, and with Wayne Rogers there, and now in color, they reenact the first meeting of Tony and Jeannie. So, you know, I had to go to YouTube and I had to find season one, episode one, which thankfully is there. And I had to do a compare and contrast to see how well they did at duplicating this. I went, I watched too. I watched the first episode to see as well. Yeah. And uh, we'll give them a, maybe a B minus or a C plus yeah. at best. Uh, it's interesting that just from the first image, when we first see the beach, Tony has laid out a bunch of sticks and driftwood and seaweed and stuff to spell out SOS because his rockets landed and he's lost and they clearly lost track of him. So the SOS in the original with Larry Heckman is very rounded letters. In this one, the letters are very square. Little things like that that you got wrong. It's like those were the things that were very easy to make the same, you know? Agreed. I get that they didn't have the ability to just literally pop on YouTube and instantaneously do a compare and contrast, but it's like, yeah, you'd think they would have tried for little things like that. They do duplicate that the bottle is one of the pieces of things that has just apparently washed up on shore that Tony is using to make these letters, and Jeannie, inside the bottle, makes the bottle roll. So, so Tony puts it back. And the bottle rolls again, which, of course, makes him pick it up, open it up, and then the smoke comes out, he drops the bottle, and Genie first appears. In the original, when the bottle rolled, the bottle rolled towards the water. Yeah. And in this one, it rolls toward the shore, toward the land. And again, it's like... That this was easy stuff, guys. You could yeah. have duplicated. I don't know what the difference is. It should, I guess it shouldn't make a difference, but it does. Um, they do duplicate the fact that her first thing is she bows before him, and they do have her saying the same line in Arabic. There was no subtitle in the original. In this one, there was a subtitle saying, Thank you for releasing me, Master. How can I serve you? or something like that. I didn't write it down, but. Uh, trying to at least let us understand what she says. And then she looks up at him, walks over to him, and because he is so handsome, she kisses him. And in both versions, Tony does look at her, at this gorgeous woman who's just planted one on him, and he says, I must have gone further into orbit than I thought. And then in this version, <laughs> we see from a distance as 
uh, Jeannie and Tony Jr. are watching, after the kiss, after this line, just don't yo 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 they disappear. They're gone. And then the beach is free and they have a nice little scene, mother-son scene on the beach. There is so much more in season one, episode one, on this beach before Tony is rescued. Yeah. They try to have a conversation. And of course, there's no communicating because Jeannie is speaking in Arabic. And at one point, he just says off the cuff, oh, geez, I wish you could speak English and I could understand you. And suddenly she speaks English because he said, I wish. And then they're communicating. And then he wishes to get off the island. And she blinks and a helicopter appears with the search committee, with the dude who was sent out to try to see if he could find Tony. And he even says, I don't know how I got here, but I'm glad I did. I found you. So, okay, you're rescued. Awesome. Thumbs up. And Tony sets her free and is like, okay, well, this is fucked up and weird and I'm going to leave you. And he even says, I set you free. He sets her free. And Jeannie, being the little imp that she is, and the fact that she's fallen in love with him at first sight, she gets back into the bottle and gets the bottle into his bag so that unbeknownst to Tony, he takes the bottle back and then opens it up, uncorks it, and she becomes his genie again later on in the show. So a lot, 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 lot more happens in the original than this movie would have us believe, uh, particularly the helicopter. That was kind of the, okay, that was a big omission. Just saying, just saying. But I love doing that shit. I love comparing and contrasting. So thank you for indulging me that. Yeah. How about the apartment? Jeannie leaves Tony in the course of this and has to yeah. set up her own apartment for some inexplicable reason, decides that she has to become an independent woman of the 80s. It makes no bloody sense why she has to go and get a job, why someone is trying to encourage her to date her boss at this sporting goods place where she starts working. Um, but the apartment, Jeannie too shows up and decorates the apartment. And it is all the 1980s pinks and mauves and dusty rose colors. And it is just spot on the height of 1980s fashion. Terrible. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so funny. I look at it now in hindsight and I'm like, Ooh. but I got to tell you, there, there's also a little piece of my heart that I feel so completely at home in that. Like there was more than one room in my mother's house that was decorated that way in that color scheme. Like it's very, very familiar to me. So speaking of period and, and Barbara Eden and, and just, you know, as we're kind of randomly throwing shit out, there were not many clips and you are right. Trying to tell the difference between what Barbara Eden looked like in the clips in modern day was very tough. Barbara Eden Definitely, her makeup was 80s. Lots of eyeliner. That thick, black Joan Collins eyeliner that everybody wore in the 1980s, but no lashes on the top. So everybody looked like... Oh, Barbara even had lashes on. Oh, did she? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, but the thing is, when they do some flashbacks to catch us up on what's happened in their life, and we see her as a young mother, and we see the reporters hounding her 
at her home, unrelenting, because I cannot think of a time in history, Matthew, when our media was not full of constant reports on the wives of our astronauts. Are you being sarcastic? Yeah. Because that was really accurate. What? You've never seen the right stuff? Was the right... Oh, is that what they were? Were they copying that from this? You never saw From the Earth to the Moon? Honestly, I didn't. And and we know people who were in that. Astronauts' wives were almost as big a celebrities as the astronauts for the Mercury mission. Really? The first first astronauts? Yeah. Like they were camped out in front of their houses. Well... Like they had to take, you have set me right. NASA put them all through like etiquette classes. And like they were like, yeah, that's what the From the Earth to the Moon and the Right stuff is all about. It's about oh. the, how the women's wives were dealing with their husbands who were suddenly celebrities and now they were celebrities. And they were on the cover of Life magazine, for God's sake. Were they? <laughs> Yes. I, I don't, I, I have no reference, no frame of reference of this. We were sending somebody into space. They wanted to know what their family thought about it. They, we were, we could have been, we didn't know. We could have been sending them to certain death. And it's yeah. like, hi, you're the wife of a husband who, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that's new information also that in my limited view of the world, which, you know, I do not claim to know anything about anything, but again, maybe because we had already done it and achieved it, it was not that big a deal. By the time I was a kid in the seventies and the eighties, it was just like, oh yeah, we can do that. So that wasn't as, as big a deal versus those early days. So, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you again. Thank you for setting me right. Let me, let me know when I I'm just talking out of my ass, assuming that my experience is, is fact. Um, but be that as it may, when they do those flashbacks to Jeannie, younger version of herself, they do change her makeup. They put a heavier lash on the top and they don't give her the eyeliner. And those are the moments when you're like, fuck, if, if I knew we never saw her with a baby on that TV show, she looks exactly the same. God, beautiful, gorgeous woman. Not her original nose, I will say. (laughs) Look up her pageant years. Look up the early, early days before she went Hollywood, uh, before like 1951. There are some pictures there where you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, we have a Marlo Thomas situation on our hands here. But uh, still, that does not diminish the insane beauty that, that she just, again radiates and lights up the screen. And by all accounts, I haven't heard anybody say, Barbara Eden working with her, what a fucking cunt she was. Have you ever heard a bad bad anything about her? No. Yeah, I have not either. And again, if we have not heard of it, it is there for a fact. And I've heard it all. (laughs) In your time. Um... Oh, my God, David. Dodie Goodman is in this. What? I I was very surprised to see her in this, too. And I thought, oh, I wonder if she's reprising a role that she played on the series. Nope. For no reason whatsoever. <laughs> Somebody thought, you know, we get, let's get Dodie Goodman to make a cameo. 
the fuck was that about? <laughs> and she plays a character named Shahrazada. Yeah. I don't know if she's supposed to be the Shahrazada, but uh, she's a writer like a gossip columnist and dressed every inch of it. She's writing an article for Jeannie in Jeannie's home journal. Yeah. Like, like there's a magazine that caters to this community or something. And later, it's the thing that Haji and Jeannie, too, are reading and getting pissed off and jealous about. And it's what makes them decide to fuck with Jeannie's life and screw everything up. And you know what made me the happiest about that? The cover photo was Barbara Eden's headshot. <laughs> I have it in my notes. I knew, I knew you would love that. Anytime an actor's headshot is used in a, a movie. I think Mackenzie Astons shows up in this as well. Does it? There's a scene where something happens and they go to two photos of Mackenzie Aston to establish that that's their son. And oh. I think one, one of them, I think, is his little black and white headshot. <laughs> oh, very likely. It probably is. And And then there's that painted portrait of her hanging in their bedroom. An oil painting of oneself, David. I am... I am shocked. I, <laughs> I know. What, I know you think it's tacky. What kind of egomaniac has an oil painting of themselves? Yeah, that's tacky. Now, an egomaniac who has two oil paintings of themselves. Well, that's normal, isn't it? Absolutely. You got to have one for every room, one in your house. It's like, what? <laughs> mm. Matthew's talking about his alter ego, Carol Lee. If you, if if I could share video, if Matthew would allow me to share video, why don't you send photographs? Take some pictures, Matthew, and I'll post pictures of your oil portraits of Carol Lee. Okay. The the two of them that you have hanging on the wall of your apartment. <laughs> and he calls me a narcissist, ladies and gentlemen. Why wouldn't the portrait have been of the two of them? You know what I mean? How weird to say, you know what, Jeannie? We need a portrait of you, just you, hanging in our bedroom. And probably was, because Barbara Eden had a portrait of her to bring to the set. Uh, maybe. She, she didn't have a portrait of her and Wayne Rogers. <laughs> she had one of her. Or she was smart and said to the writer, write it in that there needs to be an oil portrait of me. And then I'm taking that fucker home with me when we wrap. That's probably what happened. She probably still has it. I did find a video online of her uh, taking, I think it's People Magazine, went into her house. They go into her office and she has all the different bottles and she has little miniature bottles that fans have done. And, and I think the original bottle was like a, a liquor, like a promotional liquor campaign bottle or something. Like, I forget where I read that. I, I couldn't find it when I was putting my notes together for this, but yeah, wow. What else do we want to talk about? I'm looking at my notes and most of my notes were about the NASA stuff. So mm -hmm. as far as like the actual movie, I, I wish I had watched the TV show to have more of the feels about it. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to know, I started David going into like season five Wondering if the house was the same. Oh yeah, no, no. This is this is their house in Houston. 
yeah, the entire so, series was in Cocoa Beach. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, it didn't even dawn on me. So like, yeah. I, I started look and then I realized, oh, well, fuck, they're not in Cocoa Beach anymore. Yeah. So like I started like looking at that and then I kind of wondered and wished that I had watched the series. So I had more of the feels about it. Yeah. And the other thing about the series is I believe they were well into season four. I could be wrong, but of the five seasons, the majority of those episodes, Jeannie is a secret. Nobody but Tony and Roger know Jeannie exists, and they are the only ones who interact with her. Only later in the series did they say, you know, we could have her start dressing in street clothes. We could introduce her to the world at large as Tony's fiance, Jeannie. Yeah. And, you know, so Dr. Bellows and, and his wife, his wife was also another one. They were basically the Larry and Louise Tate, same thing, yeah. same characters on Bewitched. And she was a lesbian. Was she? Yeah. Oh, she wow. She was a lesbian. He was a gay. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> perfect pair. Uh, but yeah, Jeannie being uh, out among the people in the world. And like I said, dressed in street clothes, not in the harem costume every single minute that she's on screen. That happened late in the series. And then they did get married. By the way, they say, oh, we've been married 15 years, married 15 years. They've been married 16. They got married in 69. The series ended in 70, but they were married in the first half of the final season. So that's technically wrong. Um, but the deal is Jeannie... As a person, like you wanted the feels coming into this with her always dressed in modern clothing, now being allegedly a mom, though we don't really see her, you know, momming all that much. Uh, yeah, the, the feels would be when she goes back into the bottle and we see her in the pink harem costume again. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm not sure that this... This did hit all those points. I didn't feel that when I saw this in 1985. And I gotta say, God, I fucking hated Tony in this movie. Yeah. The, I mean, the misogyny is still pretty thick. Oh, my God. And the fact that the, the main crux of the conflict of this is that Tony is on the verge of retiring. And Jeannie and TJ are thrilled because they're like, finally, daddy works all the time. We want some time with him to ourselves and we're finally going to get it. And we learn that when he's considering this last mission, Jeannie is not happy. And she's like, this is not the first time you've done this. There's always just one more mission. Cut the shit. And he does say, okay, I won't. But then Jeannie too fucks with things and changes stuff around that Tony, still with his own free will, agrees to go on this mission because the other guy is out of commission with his back from the golf thing. And Jeannie is furious and understandably so. And then when she says, I'm leaving, he's like, oh, come on, don't be such a fucking bitch. I don't know, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but it's kind of like, you know what? Y you need to be home. When I come home, you need to be here. And she doesn't. And I'm kind of like, well, if he's still her master, doesn't she need to? Like, and why does she not just take off and go live in the clouds in a harem with money and everything at her disposal? Why does she want to establish herself without her powers? 
they've used plots before in both this and Bewitched where they've lost their powers, where Jeannie can't do stuff, so she's forced to fend for herself, I think, anyway. So that's weird, but yeah, the misogyny of Tony and then him saying, I miss you. And it's like, well, you know what the fuck you had to do to not have her leave. Uh, um, you know, I'm glad you like working, but dude, you got to put your family somewhere on the top of the priorities. Jesus. And and he never really apologizes or says I fucked up other than the almost dying thing. Um, and I, I really dislike the ending. I really, oh my God, really, David. really, really hate the ending. Talk to me but about what your thoughts are. I, again, I don't want to criticize you for looking for rules, but like, I didn't get it. Does she make that so that they never met? Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah. So he has no idea he's got a 15 year old son. Because that doesn't alter that. And she's going to walk by and reintroduce herself to him. Yeah. And yeah. they're going to start it. Mm, like that was the workaround. Yeah. That's okay. yeah. What we're talking about, if you haven't sat through this, uh, listeners, is that at the end, Jeannie has to save his life. And that is one thing that is not allowable, is interrupting the course of mortals and, and our mortality. So what she does is she goes to Haji and says, can you please give me some type of special dispensation? He's my husband. He's the father of this kid. And we discover through the course of this, this kid is also a genie or, or jinn actually uh, is, I guess, the male version or whatever. But uh, so Mackenzie Aston has power. So it's like, OK, he's his father. This this kind of gives us a interesting circumstance. So he says, yeah, you can do a thing to blow up the asteroid so that it doesn't collide with his space shuttle and save his life. But he has to forget he ever knew you. You basically have to erase yourself that you ever existed in the mortal world. So this retcons the entire series as well as what happens in this movie. And the workaround at the end is she's walking past him, what, six months later? Yeah, And she gets his attention and he goes after her. And she breaks the fourth wall and turns to the camera and says, Haji made me agree to an ending, but he didn't say there couldn't be a new beginning. And it's like, so yeah, I'm with you. It's like, so if, if this is a universe in which Tony never met Jeannie, did he die on the beach? <laughs> Back in 1965, when this rocket crashed, because she didn't fucking save him. Could he have another wife? What, what what does he think has been happening? That's that's a big, big little thing to just drop on us in the last minutes of this movie. Yeah. And I hate stuff that retcons other stuff. That's a, that's a big, big peeve of mine. That's all I have. That's, that's I hate sad. the ending. I don't like that as a workaround. That was such an unsatisfying ending. And I I have nothing more to say about this. That's it. That's all I got. Nothing more? Yeah. That's it. These reunions were a big thing in the 80s because of the fact that the reruns had come around again. All of this stuff that a new generation was 
digesting and we were like, yeah, bring on more of it. I could not wait to see this. I could not wait to see the Gilligan's Island uh, get off of the Gilligan's Island, whatever the fuck that movie was called. But with this, it was like, uh... get off on Gilligan's Island is a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a release I believe you did on 16 millimeter back in the 70s, Matthew. Tina Louise was in it. <laughs> well, she needed the work, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, this movie is a lot. And I, I say honestly, because you don't get Larry Hagman, you don't even get the chemistry between the two of them. I, I don't know how many talkaholic chips I'm gonna give this because. On one hand, you have basically it did not satisfy much in the nostalgia realm. But on the flip side, we get to see Barbara Eden looking fucking gorgeous and all of those other outfits for Genie 2. And uh, that in and of itself, the the outfits, that's I know this is a very gay assessment. But um, yeah, I think I'm going to give it. How many talkaholic chips are you going to give it? I'm giving it three, and that is all because of Barbara Eden's performance. Okay. Okay. You've convinced me that I'm I'm going up to two and a half. Okay. Yeah, two and a half. I would have probably given them three if they had more accurately recreated the rescue of Tony from the beach. They did use the same location. They? Yeah. It was like in Malibu. It was like right down the fucking yeah. street from the. <laughs> yeah, but it's <laughs> it was... the same location. It wasn't a damn secluded Pacific island somewhere. Oh my gosh. So that's going to wrap up another TV Talkaholics, a facts of life adjacent podcast. I am David, and on behalf of myself and Matthew, we wish you all a good night, good news. Let's be careful out there. What else you got for sign-offs? One more Beverly Ann. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, how about this? And we thank you again for downloading and pressing play. Bye, Matthew. Bye, David. Oh, so. No, more about gel coat. When the fourth... Don't you call in the... More importantly, 